Hey, welcome to the Maroon PR Podcast. Spin is a four-letter word. <laughs> we like to start our pod by explaining why we named it this way. Well, if you're a PR pro and you hear the word spin or spin doctor, we hate it. And we don't like it because it kind of implies that you're lying or you're being dishonest or you're stretching the truth. What we do is communicate. What we do is help our clients message and help them tell stories. Um, so when you hear the word spin, it makes our skin crawl and hence the name of the podcast. And on our podcast, we're going to be diving into all things public relations, media relations, media. We're going to have honest and open conversations. Um, we discuss the good and the bad. And we're going to be talking to some of the most interesting people around from fellow PR pros to, to journalists and those that are actually under the spotlight and being interviewed. Um, so our goal is to have this honest, informative conversations. We hope you enjoy it. And if you like what you hear, please you know, subscribe, follow us on social media, and uh, give us your honest feedback. We want to get better as well. Hey, everybody. This is John Maroon. Welcome to Spin is a Four-Letter Word, the Maroon PR podcast, all things PR, media, etc., etc. Uh, joined today with Matt Williams, our VP of Media Relations, and our guest today is Drew Johnson, Director of Strategic Communications at Octagon. And Drew is a fascinating guy. I've known him for a long, long time, uh, tw over 20 years. We worked together at the Washington Redskins back when they were called the Washington Redskins. And you know, we in the PR department and today Drew handles communications and public relations for some of the greatest American Olympic athletes ever. Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, Allie Raceman, to name a few. Yeah, some pretty good names there. And, and I, I think one one thing that people are going to be really fascinated by is how Drew has to work uh, on a f kind of a four-year basis, at least in our country, this seems like a four-year basis, but how he works with them on off years as well, and then how the athletes respond. And, and you know, their shot at glory is such a short window after all this prep. Yeah, and, you know, his insights on the evolution of social media and his insights on, um, you know, how, how media in general has has changed and the athletes using the platform that they have um to talk about issues that are important to them, be it mental health or abuse or what have you. So really good podcast from an old friend, and I think you'll enjoy. DJ, thank you for being a guest today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So just give everybody a little bit of background. Um, Drew Johnson and I worked together at the Washington Redskins 258 years ago. <laughs> For one season, and uh, that was it was a special and unique year. It was the first year that Dan Snyder owned the Redskins, so it was a circus. But the good, the cool part was the team was really good. Won the NFC East. Coach Turner was a hoot. We have stories after stories, and we were there for a combined total of like a year. So, uh, Drew, pretty amazing days. It's great to speak with you and the things you've done since we both parted the Redskins have been really impressive and fun to watch. No, I appreciate it. And congrats to you and all your success and your team. And uh, congrats on the launch of this awesome podcast. I think it's great to, that you guys are, are shining a light on, on, this, on, on PR. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something I'm passionate about. I've been doing it for over 20 years and was uh, – 
fortunate to learn a lot of great stuff from you. So this is a real treat for me as well. So thank you for having me. Wow. Thanks. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for the kind words. I want to jump in real quick because I want to give people a little color as to what you've been doing for the last, how long at Octagon now? I actually, I'm, I'm over 20 years. I think I'm approaching 21 this summer. Wow. That's stunning. And yeah. <laughs> to give, give people an idea of what it means to be the strategic communications uh, director at Octagon, especially where, where Drew is up in Maine, is that Peter Carlisle, uh, who heads up that office, uh, handles all of our greatest Olympic heroes. And Drew has been in charge of communications for Michael Phelps for much of his ridiculously storied and legendary career. And now he's helping other Olympic athletes and really notable ones like Simone Biles. So, Drew, take us down a little bit of a path of what it was like handling communications and public relations for Michael Phelps during what people say is the greatest Olympic run in the history of the Olympic Games. It's been quite a journey, and um, it's one that I I cherish uh, a lot, and I learned a lot from. Um, you know, I think one of the people, things that people don't quite understand or realize, like, you know, our time at the Redskins or even when I was at the Washington Capitals, the team sport athletes, you've got a built-in PR staff at the team. The league has a PR staff. There's a players association that has a PR staff. What's unique about our clients is they are really individual sport athletes, right? So they compete for themselves. Um, it's, it's only when they really compete at like a world championships or an Olympics where they're part of a quote-unquote team. So it's very much an individual sport. So a lot of the challenges that we face with our clients is helping them build a profile and, and build a platform because unlike team sport athletes, a lot of these Olympic sport athletes aren't on television every season or every night during the week. Um, a lot of people tune in once every four years, and that's one of the challenges that uh, an Olympic athlete faces. They're not in the living room every single day and night much like we're accustomed to football or basketball or baseball, uh, some of the traditional team sports. So for us, it's really trying to work with our clients to help them raise their profile and help them achieve their goals in and out of their respective sport. That's really interesting, and it's a, an excellent point, Drew. So going along those lines, when it comes to the Olympic athletes that don't maybe play in the revenue-generating sports, right, they're not like, basketball players or whatnot. There's Simone and Michael use those two as example, or Ali Raceman, who you also work with. You know, does that require more coaching of them and more training when they get into the media spotlight? Because they go from relative obscurity growing up in their sport because it's not mainstream to like all of a sudden this is our hero. We think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. We're going to watch every step of the way. We want every news gathering agency to talk to them every minute of the day as the Olympics approach. I mean, it's talk about drinking from a fire hose. How different is that is for you? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. And I don't know. There's there's a few topics we could hit just on what get, falls under that. Um, you know, the first thing I think of when you ask that question is we, we were involved in executive produced. Peter and Michael executive produced and Octagon was involved with the production of, of a documentary called The Weight of Gold. Mm -hmm. And it looks at mental health and the challenges of Olympic athletes. Um, it does so through the prism of, of the Olympics and what these you know Olympic athletes go through. So it, was, it aired on HBO last summer. It's still available on HBO Max if you want to check it out. It's an hour long. 
Um, it features Michael and uh, Apollo Ono, Lolo Jones, Sean White. Um, it's it's a tough conversation. It, it addresses a very important topic. But what's amazing to me is when you watch the film, you see all these Olympic athletes are sharing their respective stories. And they did so separately. They weren't in the same room doing a, doing an interview at the same time. They were all doing it in separate uh, interviews. Um, but what was amazing to me is just how similar of a career path they've all been through. Uh, and then how they were having so many similar thoughts and experiences along the way. So it's a long way of saying, like, there's so many elements to being an Olympic athlete in the field of play. But there are other elements of being an Olympic athlete that are unique to it. Uh, itself, unlike the, the team sport athletes. So for a lot of our athletes, it's how do you help them prepare for this grand stage moment, right? And how do you put them in position to be able to maximize their success? Because we got to presume success for our clients, um, but do so in a manner that helps them uh, understand that there is a, a, a big marketplace out there, but that fans are tuning in for that Olympic Games but you got a four-year buildup, or in some cases, for some of these athletes, they're working towards this one moment for 15 years. Mm. There is no next year. There is no next. Uh, there's no off season. There's no, you know, like in in football, like oh, we don't win the Super Bowl this year. Well, we got another chance in mm -hmm. six months after we, you know, gather for camp, training camp. So for a lot of these athletes, they're they're spending a lot of their their life preparing for this one moment, and that one moment you know, can come and go very quickly. So it's a very challenging balancing act of helping them maintain their focus on the field of play while also helping them maximize the opportunity that is before them. So uh, there must be uh, some, I don't know if the right word is pressure or or expectation. When, when, these, when these athletes have so much success, say they're in the Olympic Games, then you – then you have a short window, I would guess, to maximize that success and the attention that they're getting. And that's going to, I guess, naturally fade off at some point. The seasonal or the four-year increments must be somewhat frustrating. Or And how do you deal with that? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Matt. And, and it, it is a reality because, you know, to your point, like, I mean, this day and age with, with social media, digital media, right, there's, there's more – outlets or media organizations or media platforms to share athlete stories, um, which is a great opportunity, but it also comes with its challenges because it's hard to break through, right? It's always been difficult to break through, but it's even harder now because the media marketplace has become so niche oriented. So, you know, the value of being on Time Magazine is, is really important, right? But that level of importance today probably isn't as significant as it was, say, five or ten years ago. Sure. Um, that's not to dismiss or devalue, you know, the significance of an athlete, particularly an Olympic athlete, being on the cover of Time magazine. It just shows how the media landscape has changed over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and so now, from a communications perspective, you're trying to divide up and have a well-balanced um, communications function, right? So how your touch points are. And, you know, I, I'm a New York guy. I grew up on Friday nights. It was it was pizza night. So it was just a question of, you know, hey, mom and dad, are, are we getting one pie or two, right? You're ordering 
you know, it's a pizza pie, but we just call it a pie. You know, and the pie's got eight slices. Well, you know, well, now today, if I look at our communications platform, you know, it's not eight slices anymore. Maybe it's 16 slices. So the pie itself is still the same, but now you've got double the number of slices. How you reach those audiences requires you to have a really diverse approach. Um, and with that is the challenge of, to your point, Matt, that attention comes in a very specific period of time. You know, right now, between now and through the summer, is this critical moment where all of a sudden media from all aspects, not just sport, because you get a lot of mainstream and lifestyle media that have an, a, an interest in the, the Olympic Games, and they all kind of shine a spotlight at this one moment. Um, and that's where the balancing act becomes, because the athletes are currently, their they're peak training mode their peak like performance, they're building up for trials, mm -hmm. right? Because which a lot of people don't realize, particularly in the U.S., these athletes are still considered hopefuls. They still got to compete in Olympic trials before they officially make the Olympic team. Well, now you've got this onslaught of media coming in this very one moment. Um, it's unlike, you know, Super Bowl week has the big media day where you get all outlets from all over the world. Well, this is Super Bowl, you know, Super Bowl Tuesday media day, you know, times, you know, a lot more mm -hmm. uh, in a very condensed period of time because you don't have the, the media attention in non-Olympic years. You don't even necessarily have as much media attention in, in world championship years, which outside the Olympics, world championships is the, the biggest event for most of these sports. So now all of a sudden you're trying to get an athlete prepared to compete at a very high level physically um, but then also to understand that there's all this extra attention going on. So you're trying to create a, a normal environment in, an, in their sport and out of their sport as best you can while dealing, in a, dealing with a very extraordinary environment. Mm -hmm. Keep things simple and keep things balanced and perspective for them as best as possible. Drew, that's this John again. I think that's a really um... – really valuable insight for people because like when you mentioned the Olympic trials, like you forget, you know, because the, you know, NBC's out there, you know, putting up back in the day, Michael and now Simone, and like they still have to earn their way on as well, as great as they are. And they have to focus on that. And they're in training. I would imagine securing windows of time. Like I remember when Cal was breaking the record back in the day and we had to secure a certain schedule and a certain amount of time so the media demands weren't too much of a distraction on them and that was back when the media was much more um you know black and white right yeah. so you now have to find these pockets of time that work for them and then you utilize those pockets of time as best as you possibly can no with all these new media outlets i mean how much do you, do you work with the coaches do you work um, with the athletes directly? Do you work with, um, you know, the Olympic committee? Like, how do you figure out the best times and approach and schedule for the athletes to do this while not being too much of a distraction to their primary job? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, look, it's, it's unique again, just from a, a comparison perspective, right? I mean, your time at, at the Orioles and Cal, right? I mean, you've got media that are at the ballpark every day. Mm-hmm. Right. The media is built in as part of the schedule. Um, our athletes train individually uh, in most places. Um, they're off on their own or they maybe have one or two teammates, if you will, or athletes that they compete against and the coaches. But 
they don't have a member of the media sitting outside, you know, their locker room going to work every day. So media is not always at all these practices. Mm-hmm. Um, media is not covering these sports as regularly as they are some of the team sport athletes. So not only are you trying to block out some time for the athlete to be available, um, you're also trying to do so with multiple media outlets. Um, you've got some media outlets that are always going to cover the Olympic sports, even in non-Olympic years, right? There are some quote unquote Olympic beat writers, but a lot of them have moved on. You know, there's been a lot of change in that regard. So the, the beat, if you will, isn't as regular with the certain same number of writers covering the games for an extended period of time. So they don't have some of that historical context. But you do. So you got to balance when is the athlete available to do some media? So what does the athlete have going on and what can they handle and where is their headspace and how can we carve out some time? And then you're trying to coordinate that with media. Um, one of the biggest changes I've seen lately is this idea of exclusives and media wanting or promoting mm-hmm. exclusives. And now, uh, you know, you can do a print you know, feature story. And all of a sudden, that print feature story doesn't just involve a writer getting some fly-on-the-wall access. It now requires a camera crew mm-hmm. to get B-roll. It now requires a still photographer. So some of these quote-unquote print or digital profiles are now really like pseudo-production games. Right. Yes. And when everybody wants their own, they want an exclusive they have an expectation that they're going to have, you know, their own one-on-one time. And you're trying to balance, you've already got limited media access to begin with because the athlete just doesn't have a ton of time Mm -hmm. to begin with, particularly when we're this close to the games right now. But this is one of those things you try to balance providing everyone with some availability um, and then just being really selective with when and where you can provide that fly in the wall stuff. That's been one of the biggest changes the last, you know, five or six years, particularly is this fly in the wall. Isn't just for like the network TV package anymore. Mm-hmm. It could be for a digital profile. So the amount of access that um, these content companies want from athletes is really significant and it's added a demand. Um, and with that, there is some stress. So we try to work with our clients very closely to have a good understanding of where that, where they're at, but also with their coach. Cause the last thing we want to do is do anything that's going to interfere with training, because if it interferes with training, then we've got a problem because yep. then it impacts performance. And if we don't have performance, then we don't even have a reason to be doing some right. of the stuff okay. we're doing. So we're trying to balance that all the time. So you're in touch with the athlete, you're in touch with their coach um, and anyone else who might be important to that athlete to really understand where are they at and how do we continue to create some opportunities to make them available, to provide availability to media as best we can, uh, but do so in a way that doesn't interfere or interact with training. You touch on some great points there. I mean, I think the, the whole idea that now print is all digital and digital means you're not just print anymore, right? right. You're, you come with a camera and you come with video and it's all, it's a whole thing now. So, you know, while, while, print may be dead there it opens up a lot of cool doors but involves a lot more coordination a lot more work and a lot more time um i want to touch on i know we're running out of time here drew so um i want to touch on social media and the impact social media has and how you guys help because it's a balancing act right how do you help your athletes and maybe not the ones that are household names even but how do you help your athletes uh 
grow their social media presence, have compelling content, but not kind of step in the shit and like watch protect their brand. And how much work goes into that from from the Octagon side? Yeah, no, it's a, it's it is a it's a great point and great question. Um, it's an important conversation to be had. Um, we kind of view it as you know, social media is an extension of your media. Um, you know, we we've all done media training before, and you know, it's like if you're not going to say it when that red camera is blinking, then you know you shouldn't be putting it out there, kind of deal. Um, it it kind of takes that approach with social media. Social media is different, though. It's one of these things where it's very much personality driven. Um, and how does that athlete feel about social media just in general? And then how does that athlete feel about sharing stuff on social? So we, we kind of let that be the, the starter with athletes um, because it's got to be what, what people love about social is the authenticity. Um, and that's what we encourage with our clients is being authentic. Um, and what they feel comfortable with, because it's it's important, because it's their story, it's their it's their show, social handles. Um, some are very into it. Some get into it and do great. Start producing some of their own compelling content. Others, they do it. They enjoy doing it, but they don't kind of like you know, it's it's not a huge motivating mm-hmm. factor for them. Um, we explained that the brands are looking at it. A lot of sponsors are very well aware of. You know, who's active on social, what kind of following they have. So we, we try to speak to them as part of, again, it's, it's part of your communications platform, mm-hmm. right? So you've got traditional media, you got social media, you know, hopefully you have some sponsors, there's advertising on potential brand opportunities with those brands. Those are all, we all look at that as part of their communications platform and helping them understand how it helps fuel the engine for, for their, um, for their business and how it helps fuel things for them, you know, individually. So it's some athletes are very into it. Others, not so much. And then like everything else, there's some that just kind of come and go with it. They're kind of like, well, I'm in a, I'm in a social media phase right now and Mm -hmm. I'm going to put out a bunch of stuff. And then all of a sudden they go quiet. We try to explain, look, you just got to be consistent. Like you don't have to be full, you know, full gas on it all the time, but there's a tempo there that you, you want your followers to, to, to be aware of because that's only going to help you with social following. But a lot of it just kind of comes down to, all right, what's this athlete all about? What's their personality? What do they want to achieve, you know, in, in their career and as part of their business platform and how much do they want to be involved in social? But it, it's very uh, an important part of who they are in terms of what they're trying to do in terms of telling their story, right? We hear oftentimes people about, wanting to be able to help tell their story. Well, there's, here's an opportunity to show people who you are and what you, what you represent and do so in a very way that's very much controlled by you. Drew, uh, shifting gears just a little bit on this last question for you. Um, I know you guys, because so many of these athletes are Olympic athletes, you guys are working with, with many of them post-career. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, about how that changes the dynamic a little bit, what the expectations are perhaps from the athlete and and how difficult it may be or not difficult it may be to, to help tell that story post-career? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, we're in a unique position. Uh, we're fortunate to work with some some terrific uh, clients. Uh, I call them clients. They're athletes. Um, they're business partners. Mm-hmm. Um and one of the things that we have seen is, you know, some of our clients have had the opportunity to compete in multiple Olympic games. Um, 
And that kind of speaks to building that platform, right? That was one of the things that we always, you know, kind of had a, we, we kind of presumed a lot of success for Michael just in terms of at an early age, his coach being like, look, this is, this is someone who could compete in multiple Olympics, right? And that, that matters because that time to build a platform, right? Because, you know, what is marketing? How we look at marketing and PR, like PR is marketing, right? But, you know, reach, recognizability and relevance, they all matter in terms of an athlete's marketability. Um, so everything we're trying to do is try to help build a platform, but then also have them be in a position where they can sustain that platform beyond those 17 days, right? right? In the case of Michael, obviously multiple Olympics, right? In the case of female gymnasts, it's, it's been typically one Olympics and then you're done. Well, Ali Raisman and Gabby Douglas, you know, are the first two gymnasts to compete in multiple Olympic games. So for, for us, it's how do we help these athletes maximize their time? Now, a lot has shifted over time, right? We, we, we kind of touched on a little bit, but like the advancement of social media, um, You've got, I, I, I talk to students all the time in, in local classes and I ask them, hey, what, what, what social media platform? Do you, and it rec, name recognition here, MySpace, right? And all of a sudden you get a couple <laughs> chuckles, no one raises their hand. Well, then, then you throw out Facebook and people, everyone knows what Facebook is. And, but as we saw it, like looking at Michael's career, what we saw happen was Facebook was coming on the scene in 2008. Um, his, his, page started getting more requests than the platform could handle wow if you remember this was 2008 so 2008 the cap for friends was 5,000 people huh and it was right around olympic trials michael's fan page starts blowing up and we couldn't even access it it got shut down because wow. they just couldn't handle it so that's when facebook ends up michael ended up being an alpha partner with facebook and we did they did this fan pages right where they yep. opened up the platform so now you could take as many fans as you want so that's 2008 well come 2012 i mean facebook was still there but now now all of a sudden it was this thing called twitter and right. everyone was all the rage about twitter well fast forward since 2016 and now all the rage is instagram right and you see it with the athletes. They bounce from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram, right? So it's no different some of, than some of the traditional media that we're talking about, right, in terms of a niche audience. Well, we still want you to maintain a Facebook profile. You still want to maintain your Twitter profile. Well, now you got Instagram, and now what's next? I mean, for is it TikTok for this summer? Mm -hmm. So the social media channels are evolving. The, the media landscape is evolving. Well, our athlete careers are evolving, too. And, you know, for someone like Michael, water safety and mental health are two causes that are near and dear to his heart. They're really important to him. And that's where he's invested a lot of his time. And we've been able to do a lot of work with him in that area. Allie Raisman is doing a ton of advocacy around abuse, right? So we're, what we're seeing is a bunch of opportunities for these athletes to continue the work that they've started before they even won an Olympic medal and try to extend that beyond their playing you know, on-field performance and help them be in position for post-career success. Now, some some athletes go on to do other things. Some stay in the pocket of what they love to do. Um, so we're uniquely positioned to help athletes not only during their career, but as they transition to post-career. That's awesome. And I'll tell you what, that, that perspective on Facebook not that long ago, having limits on fans, and that's something I think a lot of people would be surprised and kind of don't really remember. You know, it's a, it's amazing. 
Hey, Drew, we're going to wrap, but last thing I do want to quick, quickly get your thoughts on, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but are there any Olympic athletes you're working with that maybe we don't know as much as the names we've been talking about, but that you're excited to be working with? Yeah, I mean, we've got uh, Allison Schmidt, who's, uh, who's a swimmer. Uh, she's a multiple Olympian. Um, she's, she, too, has you know, been very courageous in sharing her own journey with mm-hmm. mental health. Um, she's great. Uh, Chase Kalich, another swimmer. He just, uh, won a couple of, uh, um, events at the, over the weekend here at the swim meet, uh, Nathan Adrian, um, multiple Olympian, multiple gold medalist. He's on, uh, you know, he's, he's battled testicular cancer and he's wow. been very open about his diagnosis and his treatment. And, um, he's, he's battled his way back. He's in the pool swimming great and, and hoping to make another run at the Olympics. So, you know, we're fortunate to work with a great group of athletes um, and just try to help them realize their dreams. And our, our job is to help provide them with support and guidance uh, as they try to pursue their dreams, you know, on and off the, the field of play. I think it's super cool that these athletes are also using the platform that they're provided to raise awareness on issues that are important to them. Such a cool thing that they're doing. Swimming is especially large around here, thanks to Mr. Phelps. Uh, he, it's a big deal down here in the Baltimore area. But, Drew, great hearing your voice. You're a friend for a long time, and you're a great PR pro, and your insights are really valuable. I'm so appreciative that you took a few minutes to join us on Spin is a Four-Letter Word, the Maroon PR Podcast. Thank you, bud. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on and uh, having joined anytime. And, again, I applaud what you guys are doing. Um, this is uh, – this is a good conversation to be had, um, and this is an important. I'm, as you know me, I'm, I'm passionate about PR. I believe in the profession. Um, I've spent my whole career working in PR, um, learned a ton from you and a few other peers over the years, and um, the ability to continue to have this conversation and have the dialogue is, is really great, and uh, I applaud you guys. So keep up the great work. Thanks for listening to Spin is a Four-Letter Word. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe. Send us your feedback, too. We want this to be interesting for everybody. And give us a follow, at Maroon PR on Twitter and LinkedIn.